0: Gospel, chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. As you're finding it, it'll come up on the screen behind me, but as you're finding it, let me tell you that I'm continuing my series today where the title is God in Swaddling Clothes. I I could have said God in diapers. I could have said God in baby grows, but the tradition at that time was using swaddling cloths. And this is part of the series very clumsily entitled, Pregnant in Nazareth. I have deliberately chosen this rather than, "El dear Mary was with child, because I want to bring us down to earth with a bump. Uh, apart from all the the, t- the tinsel and the lights and all that, I love him. I'm not criticizing, I love it all. But apart from that, you've got the commercialization, you've got people going crazy. More drunk drivers are happening than ever before. All the kind of stuff which we fondly call Christmas. And somehow in that, Jesus can get lost. We can lose him. But we're praying that God will reveal himself, that in any way this nation of ours, which is so desperate, in any way can even mention the name of Jesus or Christmas, then God can do something. But for us more traditional worshippers of Christ... For us, even we can lose sight of the real Jesus. The real Jesus, how it really happened. It happened in history and our faith is rooted in history. What was the story really like? And now the journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem and little donkey, little donkey with a, with a coconut clip-clop, clip-clop. We used to play when we were kids or this, or this young prebubescent innkeeper with cotton wool stuck on his face saying, there's no room in the inn. Oh, and Joseph has to go somewhere else and all that kind of stuff. All that is fun. It's part of our Christmas tradition. But for a moment. Not to knock any of it, Do you get me? I'm not criticizing any of that. But let's just put it from our minds for a moment and see if we can focus on that moment when Christ was born and there in this open-air environment Mary wraps him in swaddling cloths and we can say, Behold your God. Last week we looked at God with us. Today I'm going to focus more on the humanity of Jesus, not to exclude his divinity, of course. Let's read then. Luke 2... Verses 1 through 7. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinius was governor governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was pregnant. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This aspect of the Christmas story reminds us that God shows up in unexpected and surprising ways. So, my message to you today is expect the unexpected. That old hymn we used to sing, God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. That's how my Anglican vicar used to quote it. God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. Shaking you out of your preconceptions. Shaking you out of your comfort zones. God's ways are not our ways. My message is this today God comes in surprising ways. And I wonder, as you look back over 2015, how God has shown up for you in surprising ways. One of the joys of Christmas is unwrapping the presents which come by surprise. You open the first present from your Auntie Joan, you don't have to feel it. You don't, there's no surprises. You know it's yet again a woolly jumper knitted with her fair hands and the toughest wool. It's like barbed wire. And you say, you shouldn't have, Auntie. No, really, you shouldn't have. No surprise there. But maybe there's somebody that loves you enough to give you a surprise that you cannot predict. Sometimes what Amanda and I do WE GO AND BUY OUR OWN PRESENT, NOT EVERYTHING, THERE ARE MANY, MANY, many SURPRISES. AND AFTER 36 YEARS, I'M GOING TO TELL YOU, there's, THERE'S SO MANY SURPRISES THAT COME IN MARRIED LIFE. ANYWAY, ONE OF THEM IS, is THAT WE SOMETIMES BUY OUR OWN AND THEN WE PRETEND TO WRAP IT UP AND ENJOY IT. BUT THERE ALWAYS IS A SURPRISE. AND SHE MANAGES ALWAYS TO SURPRISE ME. SOMETHING THAT I NEVER, WOW, FANCY THINKING THAT. HOW DID YOU KNOW? OH, SHE KNOWS. THEY HAVE WAYS OF KNOWING. But at a spiritual level, virtually everybody that I know who has come to Christ has come through being surprised. One of the great converts of the 20th century was the great philosopher, apologist, broadcaster, and literary literary professor by the name of C.S. Lewis. He wrote the Narnia Chronicles and and a great friend of Tolkien. And in 1955, he wrote a book entitled, Surprised by Joy. And it tells of his conversion to Christianity 24 years later in 1931. C.S. Lewis went on to be one of the stalwarts of Christian faith, uh, preaching the gospel, defending the faith, and communicating in words which are being quoted by people, believers and unbelievers alike. Very, very powerful communicator. AND HE TELLS HIS STORY OF HOW WHEN HE WAS VERY YOUNG, HE HAD A KIND OF CHILD FAITH, YOU KNOW, BEING BROUGHT UP TO BELIEVE, AND VERY QUICKLY ABANDONED THAT AND BECAME AN ATHEIST. BUT NOT JUST, I DON'T BELIEVE IN GOD, A REAL GOD DOES NOT EXIST. AND HERE ARE THE REASONS WHY I CAN DEMONSTRATE TO YOU THAT GOD DOES NOT EXIST. BUT IN THE MIDDLE OF THAT DEMONSTRATING THAT GOD DOES NOT EXIST, GOD SHOWS UP IN HIS LIFE AND HE IS SURPRISED by joy what an amazing thing what an amazing admission because somehow when you're honest enough in your pursuit towards god even if you are an unbeliever today or somebody says i don't believe it or yeah okay you're cynical maybe that's you maybe it's not but but if, if it is understand this the the secret of our hearts is that we long for it to be true I have this theory about most of our non-Christian friends. I have this theory. Check it out in your life. See how it stands up to scrutiny. But many of the friends that I have are watching us Christians to see whether it's true. And, And somehow, deep down, longing, they want it to be true. Some say, I wish I could believe like you do. I wish I had a faith like you had. And you start feeling, you know, happy about that. You say, well, why don't you? you say, well, because it's a load of rubbish and Jesus never existed. So somehow people are longing for it to be true and then when they are surprised, they discover it is true. That's the joy of knowing Jesus. So God shows up in this surprising way. He shows up as a baby. I mean, that you didn't just started a baby, as you know. He started by being conceived in his mother's womb supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, gestating to full term uh, in his mother's womb and then being born. But here we have this picture of him laid in a manger, but he is wrapped in swaddling clothes. You can't get a deeper picture, a more clear picture, that God had now become fully human Fully human, swaddling clothes, or swaddling cloths. When you put the cloths on, they have clothes. So swaddling cloths, like strips of linen, after newborn baby was washed and rubbed down with some salt, tight binding on the whole body. It was there to bring comfort, warmth, security. Swaddling still takes place in different parts of the world. AND IT BECOMES A REAL PICTURE. AND I BELIEVE LUKE WANTS US TO READ THIS PICTURE OR SEE THE PICTURE THAT HE'S PAINTING. YOU MAY RECALL IT IF YOU KNOW YOUR OLD TESTAMENT SCRIPTURES. THE BOOK OF EZEKIEL DESCRIBES ISRAEL BEFORE GOD RESCUED HER, BEFORE GOD CAME TO HAVE A COVENANT WITH ISRAEL. JERUSALEM WAS RULED BY PAGAN PEOPLE. Israel was a non-entity. And, and, and God reminds them of his grace and mercy. Let's look at these words. Ezekiel 16 verse 4. in God coming down to find her in the state. And He's the picture of an abandoned child. That's the picture here. Ezekiel 16 verse 4. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut... NOR WERE YOU WASHED IN WATER TO CLEANSE YOU. YOU WERE NOT RUBBED WITH SALT, NOR WRAPPED IN SWADDLING CLOTHS. THE PICTURE HERE IS OF AN ABANDONED CHILD. AN UNWANTED CHILD, ABANDONED CHILD. I DON'T KNOW WHAT THE HISTORY OF YOUR CONCEPTION AND YOUR BIRTH IS, BUT THERE'S NO SUCH THING AS AN UNWANTED CHILD IN THE PLAN AND PURPOSE OF GOD. GOD LOVES YOU. YOUR MOTHER AND FATHER MAY ABANDON YOU AND FORSAKE YOU, BUT GOD WILL TAKE YOU UP. AMEN IN JESUS' NAME. And so an unswaddled baby is an uncared-for baby. And the irony here is that Jesus was swaddled, meaning he was cared for, and he knows what it is to to be dependent on parents for that level of care. So human was he, and is he still. The human side of the story is this tortuous, difficult, somewhat dangerous journey from the north in Galilee, right there in Nazareth right the way down to the south to bethlehem probably they did not travel alone it would be unwise in those days they might have come with a whole group of other people maybe joined some caravan camel some camel caravan uh, 70 miles 112.65 kilometers and i'm sure she felt every step of it they did so in order to register national census now that's like Every 10 years we have one, but thank God we don't have to go where we were born for it. They, they allow us to sit where we are. The whole point about this was that Augustus was now the first emperor after Rome had been changed from a republic to become an empire. And Augustus was looking for more tax, he was looking to make sure that everybody was registered to pay tax. Very, very normal. Men come, men, men go, but the tax people stay forever. In Bible times, to say somebody's a tax collector was to say you're a sinner. Tax collectors and sinners. Nothing's changed very much in our <laughs> society. And now there in Bethlehem, it's crowded because so many people are returning to their ancestral homes. No to stay, at least no normal accommodation. We're told there's no room in the inn. The word inn can mean in, and it might well have been, can also mean guest house. An upper room was the traditional guest house of the generation. When Jesus ate his Passover meal, his Last Supper, with his disciples, it was in an upper room. Do you remember that? That was a guest room in a house. And some scholars say that we should read this as guest room, there's no room in the guest room, meaning they probably came to some relatives, people that, uh, distant relatives in Bethlehem, said, sorry, the guest room's are already occupied, but you can go and stay down below the guest room, underneath the guest room. Or it might have been the traditional wayside stopover for the caravans, the caravanserai, WHAT THESE WERE were RECTANGULAR BUILDINGS WITH HIGH WALLS AROUND THEM WITH A NARROW OPENING JUST WIDE ENOUGH FOR A CAMEL TO GO THROUGH SO THE CARAVANS WOULD COME IN IT WOULD BE A BIT LIKE THE ANCIENT EQUIVALENT OF A MOTEL AND THE INSIDE SQUARE WAS OPEN TO THE AIR BUT THERE WERE NICHES AND LITTLE SECTIONS AND PLACES where FOOD AND TROUGH AND ALL KINDS OF PLACES AND THIS MIGHT WELL HAVE BEEN THE ACTUAL SCENE WHATEVER WAS THE SPECIFIC SITUATION WE CAN BE VERY CLEAR that it was a human one, very, very human. And so Jesus is clearly born into this world, born the normal way, not conceived the normal way, but gestating and growing and being born the normal way, wrapped in swaddling cloths, just as it would be the natural, normal custom. This is a very human story. If we pause and reflect about that for a moment, and understand that the, Luke is telling us, as all the gospel writers do, and indeed the whole of the book of the New Testament from Matthew through to Revelation, the New Testament is telling us God truly became man, fully human, fully human, whilst retaining his divinity. He didn't become man by committing divine suicide. He remains God but added to his divine nature a fully human nature. God manifested in the flesh. This tells me so much. As I reflect on this, it reminds me that God is concerned about the smallest details of my physical life. My life in the body. We can become so spiritual to think that it's all about spiritual things. And yet God, who was first introduced into this world by being rudely, though carefully, wrapped in swaddling cloths, knows what it is to be fully human, knows what it is to need somewhere to stay, somebody to care for Him, knows what it means to live a fully human life, to sit where we sit. That means every part of your physical life, your physical and material life, is God's concern. God created the physical world. And spirituality is totally consistent with living a fully human life. The revelation of Jesus is to be this. It is possible to be holy and human at the same time. Jesus not only came to show us who God was and what God looked like, he also came to show us who we were and what we could look like if we surrender our lives to God. Most important of all, it tells us that God is concerned with the whole of life, life 24 7. He knows about your rent bills, He knows about the poll tax, He knows about all the stuff that bothers you and me on a daily basis. He's been there and He cares. Second thing that this story tells us, this particular part of the story, is, is, has to do with its history. History. See, a lot of people today think that religious faith has to do with opinions about unprovable facts or ideas which can live out there in the ether. It's not about the real world it's not about the world that we can that we actually live in that we can demonstrate but the point is this that the bible teaches us that god himself came into this world at a point in time and space he invaded the space time continuum he stepped into history and that's what luke is at pains to point out luke is himself a very careful historian read the first four verses of his Gospel. He writes and dedicates his two part work to a man by the name of Theophilus of the Equestrian Society. Theophilus, and he says, You know, what I've done is I have gathered. All the sources that I can find, and I have worked them together into a composite whole so you can be absolutely sure that you have a factual account and the things that you have believed and that we have believed, they are true and they are accurate. THAT'S THE KIND OF LANGUAGE OF A TRULY RESPONSIBLE INVESTIGATIVE JOURNALIST OR TRULY RESPONSIBLE HISTORIAN WHO WANTS TO GET AT THE HISTORICAL FACTS, NOT JUST WHAT PEOPLE THOUGHT OR WHAT PEOPLE BELIEVED. FOR THIS VERY REASON, IT'S NOT SURPRISING THAT LUKE HAS BEEN THOROUGHLY CRITICIZED BY HISTORIANS uh, IN ALL COMMUNITIES AND PROBABLY IN ALL GENERATIONS. I REMEMBER WAY BACK WHEN I FIRST STARTED STUDYING THEOLOGY, LUKE WAS STILL UNDER SUSPICION FOR SOME OF HIS STATEMENTS IN THE BOOK OF ACTS. YOU KNOW THAT LUKE AND ACTS IS WRITTEN BY THE SAME AUTHOR. ONE OF THEM WAS, OH, YOU KNOW, HE USES THE WRONG TERMS FOR THE ROMAN RULERS IN CERTAIN PROVINCES. And so he was ridiculed. Make one mistake and the whole Bible falls apart. Jesus is dead or never lived. And and everybody thinks that because Luke made one mistake, God doesn't exist and the planet is going to corrupt and explode and all that kind of stuff. Instead of saying, wait a bit, a man who said, I've taken time over this, who is a medical man, a professionally man, man, historian, trained thinker, as well as a historian and a doctor. Do you think he's going to be silly about getting mistakes? No, 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 no. And lo and behold, the time came when they discovered through archaeology that Luke had got it right. Same applies here. Augustus, we know him. He was the first Caesar. His uh, great uncle was Julius Caesar. If you know the histories and Shakespeare takes us into those, those areas, you find out all of this is history. Augustus was the emperor and he was looking to assert his authority at this particular time. Quirinius also had a leadership authoritative role in Syria. He was not the governor of Syria until 6 BC. And because some of the Bible translations say he was the governor of Syria at this time in Augustus's rule, which was well before 6 BC, they say Luke got it wrong again. Well, the fact is, we discover that he did have a position; he had a governmental role, but he was not the full legate, the Roman legate, the the, the uh, imperial legate, until a- A.D. six. So, when you look closely, if you if you're willing to say, let's not sort of assume this man's got it wrong, let's give him a bit of credibility and investigate. Time and time again, Luke has been proved right. This is history; it actually happened. Whole list of of. Um, OF SCHOLARS, CRITICAL SCHOLARS, LIBERAL CRITICAL SCHOLARS, THIS IS WHAT THEY SAY, DESPITE THEIR LIBERAL CRITICAL APPROACH TO THE BIBLE, AND BY LIBERAL AND CRITICAL, THEY MEAN THIS IS JUST THE BOOK OF MAN, IT'S NOTHING TO DO WITH GOD, GOD DOES NOT EXIST, THERE'S NO SUPERNATURAL, THESE PEOPLE STUDY AND THIS IS WHAT THEY SAY, ACTS CONTAINS VALUABLE HISTORICALLY ACCURATE ACCOUNTS OF THE EARLY CHRISTIANS, INTERESTING when you talk about more conservative scholars, such as is found by Barton in the archaeology of the Bible, this is what he says. Luke's statement that Joseph went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to enroll himself with Mary turns out to be in exact accord with the governmental regulations as we now know them from the papyri. He's saying that because many people say Luke had got it wrong. Luke did not get it wrong. And anyway, what we really need to walk, from, walk away with, from, with this is to say this. The whole story is showing us that Jesus actually came. He came to this world. And there are traces in history. A number of years ago, I was invited to our local uh, humanist association when I got there, I, I realized where the, how the invitation came to come to me. As one of the members of the church worked, I think, as a domestic cleaner for the chairman of this local humanist association. And she said, you ought to get Colin Dye to come and speak to you. He'll sort you out. So they were rather tense as I came to say, hi, I've come to talk to you about Jesus. And I was introduced by a man who is very common on television, well-known humanist. And he gave two compliments straight off the bat. First thing he said was, I want you to know, whatever we think about Christianity, Colin leads a church which has more people in it than all of our humanist association together in Britain. He said that, not me. (laughs) I'm not negating the heavy influence of humanism in our society, but that was what he said. Second thing he said was I also want you to know that of all the various forms and flavours of Christianity that you might come across today, the form of Christianity that Colin represents is the closest to the New Testament you will find. So those two marvellous compliments. And then all, well, in a, in a, then, then the, anyway, then they started their attacks. And, and here's how it went, here's how it went. We don't even believe that Jesus existed. PROVE TO US THAT JESUS EXISTED. I SAID, YOU DON'T BELIEVE HE EVEN EXISTED? THAT'S VERY CONVENIENT. (laughs) JUST DISMISS HIM, HE DIDN'T EXIST. WHAT ABOUT ALL THE EXTRA-BIBLICAL HISTORY? What about Josephus? What about Tacitus? There is so much evidence of Jesus existing and the major points of the gospel his birth, his crucifixion, his miracles, his crucifixion and his alleged resurrection, all of those things are recorded in history outside of the Bible. And anyway, who are you to say that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were twisting facts because they had a point to make? They were men of integrity. So this tells me, friends, that the gospel message is rooted in history and it's, as a matter of fact, to be tested. Now, of course, it still requires faith. You can believe every word of the historical record and the prophetic pronouncements made about Christ and you may be convinced intellectually that there's something in it, but you still need to take that step of faith to put your trust in it. But I'm saying all of this for you to know that the definition of faith, which is being presented today in schools and radio, television, media, and everywhere, is believing without evidence. In other words, believing something where there can be no evidence whatsoever. But we have an evidence-based faith. We can point to facts of history and science, and we can point to evidence to show that when we believe, we are believing with a reasonable intelligence as well as having a heart full of supernatural faith. But you can have all these intellectual facts, and and maybe somebody can convince you intellectually that there's something in this, but it still doesn't help you till you come to the place where you say, I'm going to put my trust in the Jesus of history. The Jesus of history is the Christ of my faith and the two are together and you can make that decision today because the Holy Spirit can reveal to you not just the historical stuff which we can find out for ourselves but the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That can touch your life as well. So when we speak about The authenticity, the historical authenticity of the story. We see his humanity and we see that this is talking about real history. Not only did he really come in real humanity, he really came at a real point of history with all the background, with all the interplay of geopolitical forces and personal relationships and the issues and difficulties that everybody faces as a real point in time. You then can become sure of certain things that your faith does not rest in empty things, your faith rests in solid evidence, second thing, you can be sure that you are not a helpless victim of your circumstances. We understand that this movement, let's let's just paint the big picture here. Okay, the end result is Jesus, Mary, 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 Joseph, and Jesus, the woman Mary this time, have to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Why? It is written. It is written. The birthplace of Messiah. Where was it? But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the southern part. You, who are least among the clans of Israel. One is going to come forth from you. The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. But the problem is, Mary is what? Pregnant in Nazareth. So God says, you need to get there from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They could have sent an angel. Yea, verily I saith unto thee, get out of here quickly and go to where you should beeth. Could have done that. And God does intervene. He intervened with the angelic word to Mary. He intervened with the angelic word to Joseph. But here, he just works out his plan in history. I'm going to uh, exaggerate this a little bit, but you'll see how. It was as if, God says, okay, Augustus, now is the time to call another census. i got a family that needs to go from Nazareth to Bethlehem, so get out there and make that decree. And so it goes out in the time of Quirinius. And so this whole situation of Roman occupation, taxation, enrollment, necessarily so at the birthplace of your ancestors. All of that was activated in history to fulfill the prophecy that the Messiah was born not in Nazareth, but in Bethlehem. Think about all the confluence of historical happenings, interpersonal relationships, personal decisions, and so on and so on, in order for that to happen. That tells us that we have a God who is in control of all things. Let's think, first of all, about the big things. The big things. I NEED TO SPEND NOW MORE TIME IN PRAYER THAN EVER BECAUSE WHEN I TURN ON THE RADIO AND TELEVISION AND LISTEN TO NEWS, I I, I GET A TEMPTATION TO WORRY. DO YOU? I I WANT TO BE A PRAYER WARRIOR, NOT A PRAYER WARRIOR. BUT IN THE PRESENCE OF GOD, AS YOU COME BEFORE HIM WITH BIG THINGS AND SAY, GOD, WHAT IN HEAVEN'S NAME IS HAPPENING IN SYRIA? God, what's going to happen? And we start praying and then there comes a confidence which is not born just out of our imagination, but born out of the revelation of Scripture as we've seen it today. Our God is in control of geopolitical forces. Our God is in control of occupying forces. Our God is in control of social forces. Our God is in control of minute, of the local politics that we and we find ourselves in. Our God is in control of interpersonal relationships. In fact, our God is in control of every detail of our lives. Let's give him a big hallelujah in this house today and if he's in control you are never a helpless victim of your circumstances. I've said to you this before, i say it again. God's promises of blessing are so real, so instant, so available, that he's already said yes and amen to every one of them in Christ Jesus, that if it looks as if he is withholding one tiny blessing, even for a millisecond, sit up and take notice. Because... The God who is able to fulfill shall fulfill. And if there is in any way a sense that there is a journey you have to take from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order to fulfill a promise of God. He is going to get you there. And sometimes when God relocates us, repositions us, either in our mental understanding, our thinking, emotionally or geographically, it's not until we get to this new surprising destination that we discover it was God's plan all along. Bethlehem, not Nazareth. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph saying, this is most inconvenient. Nobody's heard about us here in Nazareth, one of the most obscure towns in all of Israel, there in northern Galilee. Let's just stay at home. Let's just pretend we don't exist for a, uh, for a, a month or two. Because here I am about to give birth. The promise is about to be fulfilled. You're going to bring forth a son. You're going to call him Jesus. He's going to be called the son of the highest. He's going to save his people from their sins. That's the promise that I'm believing God for. But God says, No, you've got to get up out of Nazareth. I'm going to take you on a long and dangerous journey. I'll look after you. It won't be convenient. It'll be very inconvenient. But when you get from Nazareth to Bethlehem, you'll wake up in Bethlehem and say, This is where I ought to be, and this is where God is going. to bless me this is where the promise is going to be fulfilled are you on the same journey from nazareth to the place of promise to bethlehem the place of deliverance nazareth the place of promise to bethlehem the place of fulfillment then be happy and rejoice because our god is faithful and he's in control of every detail Finally, what I see from here is not just the real humanity, the real history of Jesus as well. I see the real humility. Now, when we see those lovely pictures, paint them in our minds, sing them about them in our carols, away in a manger, the cattles are lowing, but little Lord Jesus, no sound doth he make. All those sweet things, don't knock them, enjoy them, but. Stick with reality. Don't forget that this is surprising and that's an understatement. Don't forget that the humility that Jesus shows by being born in those circumstances to a family of modest means. I can't get a handle on just how modest. I'm not so sure it is right to say they were in poverty. They had a business, but I don't think they were raking it in and rolling in. Jesus was not born into opulence. He was not born in a palace. He was born in a stable or in a park where animals were kept. He was laid in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Isn't that going to tell you something, isn't it? It's going to tell you that the kingdom is not going to come with opulence, with princely power, or palatial luxury. The kingdom is going to come in humility and in recognition that God has led the way. Graham Kendrick's hymn, Meekness and Majesty, puts it well. Oh, yes, he was as majestic as we shall see him in his glorified state when he comes to establish his kingdom from heaven above. He has that majesty within him all the time, but here there is meekness and humility. They had modest financial means. The location outside the inn, in the stable, if that's correct, underneath the relative's guest house, or in one of the niches in the walls, or near the walls of the caravanserai, Caravanserai, no room. Born under the sway of earthly political and foreign influence. Subject from birth to the inconvenience of poll tax and enrollment in the International Register of the Roman Emperor. Dependent on parental care, Swaddling cloths, the symbol of Mary and Joseph's loving parental care, cutting the umbilical cord, washing the body, rubbing with salt, binding in swaddling cloth. What does this mean? It means Jesus was born into a situation where he was dependent on human parental care. And the same one who is later to preach in life, not just of babes, but of infants, let the little children come to me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven, meaning I know what it is to be dependent. What condescension that he'd come from heaven ruled All things, seeing his father's kingdom stretch out from eternity past to eternity to come. This great mighty one now needing diapers, being changed, and whatever you do to babies these days. Ask Gabriel. (laughs) That humility is the open door of the kingdom of God, of such is the kingdom of heaven. Today, don't be arrogant. Bow your knee, bend your heart, and say humbly, there's room in my heart for you. The humility of submitting to external care. He grew up in that environment. Later on in life, he learned not just to trust the people around him, his parents, and then take care for his parents as they grew older, but of course, all of his life, to put his trust in his heavenly Father. And this, this means there's great hope for every single person today where, where he says, I know what it is to be dependent and to trust. And I know what it is to be in need of that care over my life. So whenever you are in need, he remembers. I wouldn't know if his conscious memory would take him back to the, back to the manger, but he would have certainly heard about that. But anyway, he would know that he's been in the same place. So when you are in need, when you are in need of parental care and you don't find it, when you are in need of anything from outside yourself and you don't have it, he feels with you and feels for you because he's been there, He sat where you sat and he knows how to intervene in your life. So God... Shows up in surprising ways. How has he surprised you this year? Have you had a surprise trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem? Has God surprised you in a way that he's shown up? I never thought that God would show up in my life like that. So unusual. One thing we can almost certainly be sure of it never happens the way you think. And when it happens, not the way you think it should or is going to happen, it happens another way, it's always better. His ways are higher than our ways. His purposes are bigger than our purposes. And when we learn to submit ourselves to the swaddling clothes of God's parental care to say, here am I, take me, I'm ready, surprise me. We thank God for His real humanity FOR THE REALITY OF THIS HISTORY AND THE DEEP HUMILITY THAT IS HIS. AND THIS SHOWS THAT CHRISTMAS CALLS YOU AND I TO LAY ASIDE OUR WAYS AND TRUST IN GOD'S WAYS. THAT IS THE ESSENCE OF FAITH AND THE ESSENCE OF THE KINGDOM OF GOD.